please stand if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. Please read with me the verses in bold. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Together, he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Um, when I was a teenager, I would play this game in youth group called Do You Love Your neighbor. I wanted to ask uh, if you knew this or not. I always thought of this as a Korean church thing, but it's not. I, I don't know, maybe it is. Um, there were a lot of weird things that we did in the Korean church, and so I'm not sure. That's why I'm asking. But if you don't know the game, all the players sit around in a circle on chairs, and there's one person who isn't. It's the person who is it. And the one who is it approaches anyone in the circle and asks them this question, do you love your neighbor? And the person who is asked the question can answer in one of two ways. They can answer yes. And so the player on the, or I'm sorry, the, the one sitting on the right and the one sitting on the left change spots. The person who has asked the question remains still, and the person on either side of the one who has been asked this question changed spots. And the one who asks the question tries for one of those two spaces, and so, again, there's one person who is without a chair, and that person is it. Or you can say no. But the no must be qualified uh, 
their, their answer must be qualified by stating, no, but I love people who are, and then you fill in the blank. I love people who are wearing glasses, or I love people who wear socks, or I love people who play basketball. I mean, you, you can fill in all sorts of different things, but anyone who fits that qualification has to stand up and find a new chair. Am I ringing, is it ringing any, bears, ringing any bells at all for you? Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll play it one of these days. Uh, it's a pretty, I, I don't know, I, I found it in the Korean church to be a pretty violent game. You know, you, uh, a little hip shove and uh, a little pushing, a little pulling of the chair. And again, you can leave that to a game with lots of bruises. Uh, but, um, but yeah, there's mass pandemonium. And then uh, again, you find a chair uh, like there's no other. And you, uh, and the person who is left without a chair is the one who is it could be a pretty violent game. Uh, in my youth, there was pushing and shoving, and I think uh, all in the name of love. By the way, it's a very conditional kind of love. Uh, I love my neighbor who. Well, before we answer the question that the lawyer poses back to Jesus, I think it's important we ask the question that Richard Stearns poses in his book, The Hole in Our Gospel. Stearns is the president emeritus of World Vision, a humanitarian aid and relief organization that serves the world's most vulnerable people. He asks the question, what does God expect of us? What does God expect of me? What is the Christian faith all about? Going to church every Sunday? Saying grace before meals, avoiding the most serious sins. He continues, what does God expect of me? It's a very profound one, not just for me, but for anyone, he says, who claims to be a follower of Jesus. What is God asking for, really from you and from me? Seems like much more than church attendance, more than prayer, more than belief, more than self Denial. The question, what does God expect of me? The man, the lawyer, he knew the right answer. He knew the answer to the question even before he asked it. I feel like that sometimes that's the way I ask my kids' questions, but I ask it anyways. The man, the lawyer, knew the right answer. God expects that we love him with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one, love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two commandments, or perhaps the, the two from which or on which the whole Ten Commandments hangs. It's the first commandment and the second one, to love God with everything and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. This isn't the answer Jesus gives to the lawyer. It's a response that the lawyer gives in the answering of his own question. The word translated lawyer is uh, really a scholar of the Torah, a scribe, an expert in Old Testament scriptures, 
He knows what the Bible says. He's not asking because he does not know the answer. We are told he's coming to test Jesus. He's trying to unmask Jesus as a fraud by cornering him into some theological trap. So here's the test question that he proposes, that he proposes to Christ. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus, as a good teacher, he redirects that uh, scholar back to the, to the Old Testament and asks for his expertise, and perhaps eager to show off how much he knows, he responds back by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, love God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind. And Leviticus 19, verse 18, shall live, love your neighbor as yourself. He answers correctly. And so Jesus states matter-of-factly in verse 28, then do it. Do it. I'll get back to this in a minute. But you see what's happening in this text. It's the lawyer who finds himself in a trap. He is the one who is being tested. Because Jesus says, well, what does the law say? How do you read it? And he responds back, well, the first commandment, and then the second commandment. And then Jesus says, yes, you are correct. Yes, yes, you have answered rightly. Now go and do it. And then in verse 29, the lawyer, knowing that he's been cornered, asks another question, attempting to justify himself. He asks for clarification. He asks for a definition or a defining of terms or the limiting of the scope of the commandments. Who is my neighbor? You see, the assumption in his question, who is my neighbor, he assumes he doesn't need to love some. Some people he assumes are excluded from the category of neighbor. And therefore, he doesn't need to bother with them. Only some people will qualify. And that's his loophole. That's how he can get away with following the commandments of the law. With pride. Perhaps with prejudice. And this certain lawyer wanted clarification, defining of terms, and thus restricting or limiting who his neighbor was. He was probably seeking clarification of what allowed him to feel confident about where he stood. If you tell me who my neighbor is, then I'll have no problems adhering to the law. If you say my neighbors are my friends, I'll love them the best way I can. If you say my neighbor is my church, then I'll devote myself completely to them. He was saying, Lord, define what neighbor is. You see, for to love everyone, to love everybody is impossible. So would you limit or define what you mean by neighbor? I know this is a, a term neighbor that we use pretty broadly, but uh, I look at my own neighbors. I'm not sure if they're listening online or not, but uh, I, look, I think about my own neighbors and I have wonderful, wonderful neighbors. I have uh, one on my right and one on my left who, uh, who are wonderful neighbors. Uh, they watch our house when we're out. They, um, they mow our lawn at times when I forget to mow it. 
Um, they check our mail when we're gone. They, they do all sorts of great things for us. And then there are, there are some other less desirables in my neighborhood. And I think about my neighborhood and I, uh, Lord, define. Define neighbor. Lord, limit the scope or the, the restrictions of the, the commandments. What do you mean by neighbor? I mean, it sounds like a lawyer, doesn't it? This man was essentially looking for an answer to his question. The Old Testament law had such things as expelling the leper from the community, stoning the woman caught in adultery, purging the unclean from the clean. There were hundreds of laws regarding relations with one another in the Mosaic law. So it was to be expected, love your Jewish friends, the holy priests, and those who are clean. And that's what this lawyer wants to know. The lawyer realized that the only way he could possibly fulfill the law's demand was to limit its demand. He should have acknowledged his inability to keep these commands and asked Jesus what he should do. And instead, he tried to justify himself, to declare himself as righteous by limiting the demand of the law and then showing that he had fulfilled that limited demand. You see how that works? Lower the bar, and I can fill it, fulfill it perfectly. But what he is about to hear comes as a shock to this expert in religious law. You see, what this man was asking went against the essence of the great commandments. You see, it's at the heart of the great commandment is a relationship of devotion, a devotion that places God at the center of one's spiritual life and responds to others in that same type of love. You see, the thing about the Old Testament law was never a, a checklist of things that you do to make yourself uh, more holy or, or less holy, more righteous or less righteous, more in favor with God or, or less in favor with God. You see, the Old Testament law was never there so that we would See a checklist of things that we do to God's holiness and righteousness. The Old Testament law was there to show us, I think, two things. One, how much God loves us. And number two, where we fall short. And so this lawyer just doesn't grasp this very important thing that, again, the Old Testament law is there as a way to look at our relationship with God. You see, how we see God, how we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength affects the way we love our neighbor as ourselves. You see, the depth of one's devotion is emphatically underlined by the repeated reference to the various parts of the person that contributes energy to this love heart or emotion or soul or, or strength or, or will. It's the whole person that must be devoted and given over to God. And Jesus wants to make that very clear in this section. And so he does so by telling a story, a parable. So Jesus, in our text this morning, goes on to share a story. It's an illustration about what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus said, there was a man on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Thieves fell upon him, beat him, stripped him, robbed him, left him for dead. And before too long, 
a priest, a pastor, a minister of the word, a pastor of a local church came by, saw the poor man lying there, but he walked on the other side so that he wouldn't have to get involved because he had to get to the temple. A few minutes later, a Levite came by, a pastor's assistant, perhaps an intern at the church, a student of God's word, a man who was supposed to know that I saw the poor man lying on the side of the road. He too crossed to the other side so he wouldn't have to bother with him. He was already late for his Torah discussion group. Now what happens next is shocking. A third traveler comes by, an unlikely person to help this Jew because for you see this man is a Samaritan. And Samaritans have no dealings with Jews. For the Jews, the Samaritans, uh, or for the Jews, the Samaritan was the least re respected of all peoples. They were a despised group. So when the, this hated Samaritan man came along and saw the poor man lying there, found him to be still alive, he took wine, poured it on his wounds, he dressed his wounds, picked the man up, put him on his donkey, took him to the inn, Pay the proprietor, stay the night with the man, and the next morning he took money out of his own pocket, gave it to the innkeeper and said, if there's more, I'll settle it when I come back. This man, as a shock, outshines the exemplary Jews. But take a look at the text. A Samaritan came along and found a dying man, and Jesus says he had Compassion. That's the whole point of the story. Again, here is, is these words. Uh, here's this particular word, compassion. Describe this obedience to the second commandment. The second commandment is uh, to love our neighbor as ourself. Compassion. It's used uh, numerous places in the life of Jesus, the ministry of Christ. Matthew 14 tells us that Jesus had compassion on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The Bible tells us that, again, Jesus had compassion on them, and he sees the 5,000 who are hungry and, and no place to go. And so he feeds them. Or two blind men of Jericho in Matthew chapter 20 tells us that he was filled with compassion, and then he healed them on the spot. Or Mark chapter 1, another example of, of compassion a leper came to him, imploring Jesus, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And it says, moved with compassion. Moved with pity. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will. I am willing. Be clean. And it's the same word that Jesus uses in this parable of the Samaritan man. And the Samaritan man had compassion. In verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion. Compassionate involvement is the essence of the golden rule. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus gives us the golden rule. He wasn't the first one to say something like this. In fact, the Jews, the Hindus, the Buddhists, 
And others have been saying similar things for years, for, for decades, for centuries, for millenniums. For example, Hindu faith says, this is the sum of duty. Do not to others, which, is, which if done to, to thee, would cause thee pain. I love that. Or the Jewish faith, what is hateful to you, do not to your fellow men. This is the entire law. The rest is commentary. Or the Zoroastrian faith, whatever is disagreeable to yourself, do not do unto others. Or the Buddhist faith, hurt not others with that which pains yourself. Or Greek philosophy, Socrates, who said, do not do unto others which, uh, that which angers you if done to you by others. Uh, you guys get the point. There are many different faiths faiths that have this golden rule. They all sound very similar. But I think there is one subtle difference. All these I have just shared with you are negative in nature. I mean, it's kind of what we tell our kids. Don't do it if you don't want them to do it back to you. Right? Do not do unto others what you would hate to have done unto you. But the words of Jesus are positive in nature. You see, all other religions warn men to withhold evil from others. They tell us what not to do. And Jesus, on the other hand, tells us to be active in reaching to others the same manner that we would desire to be reached out to. Compassion. The lawyer says, love God, love your neighbor. He does some sort of a summarization of the Ten Commandments, the two tables of the Ten Commandments. And he says, okay, that's what I'd answer. What I need to do to inherit eternal life is to love God and love neighbor. And Jesus says, you are correct. But that is not all that Jesus says. But notice what he goes on to say. He says, you have answered correctly. And then he says, do it. This is huge in this passage. Twice in this passage it happens. Twice the lawyer answers correctly in verse 28 and then again in verse 37. As we come to the end of the story that Jesus told, which actually ends in a question, you don't even have to be an adult to know how to answer this one. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to have been to church enough times to get this answer correctly. He answers, and I'm sure there was some, uh, some disgust that he felt in his heart. He couldn't come to terms by saying uh, it was a Samaritan. Instead, he responds, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, do it. You go and do likewise. He answers right both times. Both times Jesus says, do it. What's going on here? The answer of Jesus to the lawyer's answer is absolutely critical for understanding what's going on in the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus' concern is that while the lawyer can give the correct answer, he is not, in fact, doing what he says. Ouch. The lawyer knows the right answer. But he's not living the right answer. And according to Richard Stearns in his book, that is essentially the hole in our 
gospel. The hole in the gospel, or the hole in our gospel, is, is those who come to church with, with a head full of, of Scripture stored up. The one who has spent hours upon hours studying the Word of God and the one who knows theology and, and doctrine and have known from a little child what to do and, and yet doesn't do it. The hole in our gospel, again, even James says, is like a man who looks at himself in the mirror and, and then right away forgets what he looks like. I think this is one of the most profound portions of Scripture because it's, it's not profound at all in terms of the instruction that Jesus gives his, this man who, who asks him and, and attempts to corner him in this theological debate. Your problem, lawyer, is not what you know or what you don't know. It's, it's that you don't do. And you don't live it. You don't practice what you, you preach. And I laugh and I, and I hurt at the same time because I, I think, this is me. In the course of the story, Jesus does several things. First of all, he shows you how wide the extent of the law's command is. The command to love your neighbor extends even to people you have contempt for. Three questions and I'll quit. Number one, the real question, as we're reading this text, the real question is not who is my neighbor, but am I a neighbor? The real issue is not who is my neighbor, but am I a neighbor to those around me? It is not just to spot out those who we could display our love towards. It's easy to love those who are lovable. It's easy to love those who love you. It's easy to love who shower you with gifts. It's easy to love those who, who shower, you, shower you with praises. But we are required as a child of God. What does God expect of us? To love anyone who comes our way. The real issue is not whom we should serve, but that we serve. Not who we should love, but that we love. Not who is my neighbor, but am I a neighbor? Loving your enemies, loving the, the difficult. And Jesus radically changes this view. Question number two. One of Luke's themes is that Jesus has grace for the outsider, even when we don't. And receiving that grace changes everything. And so the question is, how do we love God? You see, the outgrowth of that love for God is the response to our fellow humans in the same type of love. In other words, you love God by loving others. Devotion to God is expressed by devotion to others. And Jesus says, again, he will have said it, so whatever you have done to the least of these, you have done unto me. The Samaritan fills the role in the story that the scholar expected to fill 
himself because the Samaritan does what the scholar should. The religious expert does not yet know the first thing about being rightly related to God, and it shows in his superior attitude towards others, his superior attitude to his neighbor. And when Jesus says in the Bible, to the Bible scholar at the end, you go and do likewise, he's calling for much more than a better effort to be a nice guy. He's calling us all to a radical change of perspective, not just on who our neighbor is, but on what it means to know and love God and how that should show in our lives. We are what people see when they want to come to know Jesus. How does Jesus know that we love him? By the way we treat others. When Jesus speaks of the second greatest commandment, he's pointing out second, not as inferior or less important than the first, uh, but rather second in sequence. These two commandments are inseparable. Loving our neighbor is a sign that we are loving God. It's proof loving him is about loving them. Question number three, it's the question that this lawyer asks of Jesus, what must I do? What must we do to inherit eternal life? This is an important question, one that, should, one that we should all be asking ourselves. Are you asking this question? Jesus says, what is written in the law? What is written in the law? The Ten Commandments found in the Old Testament, the law that was given to the people of Israel. As Moses and the people of Israel wandered the desert, for 40 years, God gave them a law to adhere, a law to obey. And Jesus asked the question, well, what does the law say? How do you read it? And the lawyer answers correctly to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And if you have been here long enough, if you have been here enough times, perhaps you know that there have been all sorts of things that we have been doing. There are all sorts of ways that we try to merit favor with God, that in, that in some way that all the good that we've done outweighs all the bad in our life. And somehow, according to the law, we think, if I live a good enough life, that I'll have an entrance into heaven. What the law does is, is it teaches us, it shows us how much God loves us, but it also reveals to us the depravity of our own hearts. And that's what the law did for this young man, this lawyer who came to him. It revealed to him where his sin was. And I've, I've said, I think, uh, in previous sermons that whenever we come to passages like this, we ask ourselves the question, what does this tell us about the heart of God? And how does this point to Christ? And again, sometimes it may be awkward when we're in the New Testament and we're looking at the stories of Jesus and saying, well, yeah, it's right there. It's obvious. Well, the point of the text, I think, is that Jesus himself is the good Samaritan. 
When we were dying, when we were left half beaten on the side of the road, it was the Good Samaritan who came and, and picked us up and bandaged up our wounds, put us on his own animal and, and took us to an inn and cared for us. And whatever is still left to be paid, I will come and take care of it. And, and Jesus, in the same way, he, as he hung on a cross, he said, the, the debt has been paid in full. Praise God. Praise God. 